Hey friends, welcome to another brand new episode of Coming Up Next. You know, the show comes to you for free each and every week. Uh, and if you want to do something to support the show, head to comingupnext.com.au, select your platform of choice and hit subscribe. I'm going to keep bringing you podcast rambles with top creatives around the world each and every week. For nada, niente, all you got to do is hit subscribe. Well, you don't even have to do that really if you don't want to. Um, anyway, should we get on with the episode? Here's the interview. G'day friends, welcome to this week's episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. It's episode 159 and a cracking interview coming up with Craig Melville. Big thank you to uh, to my guest from last week. A big thank you to Lust Maud for giving some insight into uh, into an exceptional career in the world of music. If you haven't uh, listened to it, you know where you can find it. Comingupnext.com.au For those who are first timers, welcome at said address. You can find the entire back catalogue. Of, uh, of podcast rambles for your consumption. And if you like the show, maybe you recommend it to your friends for their consumption. And then they recommend it to five friends, and they recommend it to five friends, and then it's a Wayne's World reference. Craig Melville joins me in the Ramble Room this week. Craig is, uh, is a TV and advertising film director or a TV and film and advertising director, or a film and TV and advertising director. You'd, uh, you'd almost certainly be familiar with some of his work if you're from the land down under. His most prominent work being uh, collaborations with John Safran for uh, his TV and documentary work, The Chasers, and uh, Lawrence Lung. He's, uh, he's recently made a move to New York and happened to be in London um, for, for about a week and uh, gave up uh, an afternoon of his time on a Friday afternoon to come and have a good old-fashioned ramble with me on his, uh, on his life, on his career, on, uh, on how technology or being ahead of the curve with technology has really helped him to establish himself as a, uh, as a director in the, uh, in the business of show. Uh, if you want to check out Craig's work, it's available on his uh, on his website at craigmelville.com. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great stuff on there, a lot of great content, and uh, what's even better is the end of this long-winded introduction. So please kick your shoes off, pour yourself a hot cuppa, unless you're in London in the sweltering heat, and uh, and enjoy my uh, my podcast episode 159. Uh, interview with Craig Melville. You've come over to London with your wife, uh, and you mentioned that you know you you'd been working on a few pieces over in New York, and you've been living in New York for the last two years. Yep. How have you found, I guess, uh, the difference between building a career for yourself in Australia and then moving over to to a new country, to a new hemisphere, to be in a completely new environment? Yeah, it's been um, it's been an interesting transition, and I've been uh, in New York for about two years, but I've also been traveling back to Australia quite a lot. So, <clears throat> in the last you know, eight or nine years, I've done a lot of commercial work as well as sort of 
doing TV on an ad hoc basis. So um, I've continued to keep doing advertising work in Australia and live in New York, which is kind of a, right. it, it's kind of weird because we, did, we didn't come to New York with a particular career objective or anything like that. It was just, let's do something different. You know, we've been in Sydney for 10 years. Um, Helen and I both you know, don't have family there. Our families are in Brisbane and Melbourne. Um, so we just thought, why don't we do something different and just change it up? We, we, we're planning on having kids like people of our age yeah. tend to do. So we just thought, well, you know, it's an opportunity to do something different. How did you find bridging the gap between the work that you were doing, you know, the, the I guess the television work that you were doing into uh, more more of the advertising space and, and much shorter form work? Yeah, I've always kind of blended the two because I started out working in an ad agency when I was like a teenager. So oh, really? I started off, I was one of the few people in Melbourne who actually knew how to use an Avid which was very handy because it was at the point where people had just moved from using very clunky equipment into using these, uh, you know, editing systems that we use today, the non-linear, much more fun editing system. So <laughs> the jigsaw you know, when puzzles. I was 18, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like uh, I'd learned how to use the really boring machines and that just I just did not like that at all. And I'd mucked around with music, so I knew how to, like, use MIDI and things like that, which were very similar. So um, <clears throat> as a sort of young kid all of a sudden I knew how to do these things that the adults didn't really know their way around a mouse, but you know, I was able to <laughs> you know, impress them with like, well, look, we can put a dissolve here. And it's like, wow, that didn't take 10 minutes to do, you know, like yeah. it was an amazing uh, transition that uh, I was very lucky because this ad agency Clemenger, which is one of the big, you know, now one of the, you know, the top agencies in the world, if not the top agency now, um, were very, very good in like, they would integrate a lot of the production into their, creative work so uh, I was just in this little room that had an avid and a bunch of gear we had cameras and mics and all sorts of things and just me and usually one or two other people who worked there and um, we just got to make stuff so if someone had an idea for an ad and they thought well this is a bit weird hmm. would uh, you know rather than presenting this on paper maybe let's go and shoot a little test of it and see if we can sell it that way to the client and show them what they what they um, would expect and so it was a good testing ground to just try things out and I'd go and shoot ads in this very rough fashion just with the random people around the agency and then they're going to get the money and get you know, a proper director to go and <laughs> do it properly and you go well that's okay that's interesting they, they took some of the things that I did and then they just made it better this way or that way or, or sometimes it's like it's basically just they just followed what I did yeah. <laughs> so and other times it's like oh well yeah okay it's a lot better than what I did so it was like <laughs> a good learning experience to have that yeah, and I guess that you can also kind of see that your instincts are in the right place most of the time. Mm. And it was a, it was a different kind of experience to, uh, I guess, the traditional film school path because rather than being focused on the film, the traditional film process, it was more advertising creative process. So uh, it was just a lot of people with interesting ideas who in themselves were quite good directors and art directors and creatives and writers who would write their own stuff and make films and so we were kind of a good collective of people who who um, helped each other out and you know many of those people went on to do different things like you know Tony Rogers was an art director who um, did Wilfred and you know, lots and lots of other stuff in Australia yeah. and um, it was great and so he was an art director there at the time and a lot of those art directors ended up directing their own TV commercials and that was part of the, the culture at the time um, which is a bit unusual uh, that doesn't usually 
happen in my experience but it's it sort of feels like nowadays it's starting to get more um, mixed up where people get their hands on stuff because it's not as hard to do yeah so you grew up in melbourne yeah i did yeah took a step in the dark yeah for sure melbourne and brisbane yeah 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 exactly 50 percent chance <laughs> yeah uh based on the fact that you know pete i was going yes. on that yeah uh whereabouts in melbourne did you grow up I uh, grew up in Vermont South, okay. so around the corner from Channel 10. Yeah, right. So we'd uh, occasionally go and see Young Talent Time being filmed, <laughs> that sort of thing. The Eyewitness News station was around there with a helicopter. Did that, was Neighbours shot out of there? It was, yeah, 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 yeah. One of my friends from high school actually had, um, he lived in one of the houses. Really? Was, uh, I, I never really watched much of Neighbours, but it was probably like Harold's house or something like that. And so it, uh, you know, we'd sometimes uh, have parties at his place and... That sort of thing, which is funny, actually, because uh, there was always a security guard out the front of, in a little court, like, in a little closed-end uh, thing, and there's always a little security guard in a little Hyundai out the front who would stop the <laughs> British backpackers trying to get in and take photos right. and that sort of thing. So you had to go and check in with the security guard uh, when you arrived That's at Daniel's funny. house, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so parents, are they uh, creative in, uh, or in creative industries? No, funnily enough, my dad was a glazier, now works more driving trucks, mm-hmm. and my mum was a school teacher. Right. I was more of a stay-at-home mum for, for most of my life. Um, so they were always very supportive of us, like all, all the kids in the family are pretty creative. And our grandparents and kind of that sort of generation were like architects and artists and inventory kind of people, like they did interesting, interesting random things. So um, they're always very supportive of that sort of thing, and, you know, and our grandparents were very nurturing for the creative side of us and uh, you know our parents just sort of let us do what we want more or less yeah it's interesting isn't it there's it's it's in my uh family as well on my dad's side anyway it's like my grandparents are quite creative and uh my dad had some creative uh or had has quite a lot of creativity and creative impulses but went to find a much more stable kind of job and Mm. income revenue or income stream and then my brother and i uh, very both very creative you know musician and filmmaker mm. it's interesting that there's that kind of um uh, that baby boomer generation and i and i've spoken to a lot of people that have similar experiences where there is that like that thing where the where our parents went off to get that more stable or more secure kind of job mm. and now we've gone off and done the opposite again yeah 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 it's interesting to know what the trends are i mean <clears throat> I always sort of have a struggle with that thing of like, you know, are you a creative person or are you not? You know, because I find it so blended. Like you think you, there's so many interesting people who you go, oh, that they're, a, you know, they're an engineering person, but they solve amazing creative yeah. problems. You know, like you go, oh, well, that's that's way smarter than someone who can just slap some paint on a canvas. Like that <laughs> takes real inventiveness, you know, and you think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to catalog people into, you know, one of these two categories, but often the truth is somewhere in between. Like, you know, that's someone trying to solve some interesting piece of code in a in a uh, software situation you know you have to be super creative to figure out how to apply these very abstract things mm. um you know it's it's kind of it's it's easy to kind of like yeah to it's write cre- people off and just go no but they're not creative because they don't fit the box of what i expect well, yeah i think that everyone is um fundamentally creative like people human beings are fundamentally creative in uh in sort of any capacity, it's it's mm. more how that's being used in their lives to, uh, or uh, I guess to propel their life or to what it compels them to do mm. Mm. more than anything, which is, uh, I guess, how 
we end up pigeonholing people as either creative or, or otherwise. But I, I completely agree with you. I think that, um, yeah, I think that everyone is innately creative. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's just how you spend your time, and if yeah. you've got the, you know, the inclination or the, you know, the ability to it, yeah, you know, some people just don't have resources. that. Yeah, exactly. Just don't aren't in a lucky enough situation to get good at something. Yeah, you know, yeah, a, lot, yeah. a lot of the time, it's just people start off terrible, you know, and they <laughs> eventually become good at what they do from practice. And mm. yeah, you know, there's lots of interesting stories you hear about that. Um, yeah, you know, listen to a few podcasts on that way, like this woman who was um, an academic was studying learning, you know, just how people learn. And she always wanted to be a singer and she was just a terrible singer. And as part of the academic process of writing this paper, she just found this person who was like the best singing coach. And uh, so she tells this great story about how she went to the coach and it was just like six months of just trying really, you know, failing basically and being terrible at it and getting her ass kicked. And eventually probably. she just became really good. Yeah. And, and she even, I can't remember which country she was from, was maybe somewhere in Europe. But um, anyway, she ended up having, it was a smaller country, but she ended up being like number one or two on the charts and had this song. And it was like amazing turnaround. And it was just like, well, that shows what great mentors and, you know, perseverance can actually do if you're lucky enough to be in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's very true. And, you know, yeah, I think talent will only get you so far. You know, you got to have the right sort of work ethic. You got to have the right sort of tenacity. And like you say, there's plenty of people who are far less talented, who are far more successful because they're just hungrier or they just want it badly enough. Yeah. And it's such a combination of different things, isn't it? All those talent and opportunity where you are, what time, you know, where do you fit on the time scale? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like super lucky that I happen to know stuff that other people didn't know at a very crucial and many crucial points along the way mm. even you know when i was at school I, I didn't have any there was no media studies or anything like that but i was lucky because my grandfather lent me his video camera you know mm. which doesn't make any sense like, you know, <laughs> why would you give a nine-year-old a very expensive video camera but he knew i'd take good care of it and it made me extremely paranoid yeah <laughs> that i was gonna break it you know but so it was like a thing i was super careful with and you know that that told me a lot but that was just a Luck of the draw. You yeah, know, yeah, my, yeah. My grandfather might have decided not to buy that camera and do something more sensible <laughs> with his money, and uh, you know, and uh, and yeah, and and technology. I suppose that's the other thing that I've always been into. You know, and aside from the creative side of things, I'm very into just technology and what what it can do for us creatively. And um, quite a lot of the things that I've done along the way have just been enabled by a change in technology. Like when we did John Safran's documentary shows the main reason why we could do that was because dv cameras were around they weren't these massive huge cameras with big heavy batteries that we could shoot these little these little tiny inconspicuous cameras and it was good enough for standard def television back in the day and uh you know same thing with final cut and all those sorts of things that are tools that were just on the edge and I've, i've always been on the lookout for those things and being lucky enough to kind of pick pick a few of the winners you know it's like yeah Final Cut version one, like I have the copy of it, you know, you know and it's, uh, you know, uh, doing that sort of research has paid off for me uh, because it just meant I could do stuff that other people couldn't afford to do because they were using the old method of doing that. Yeah. I want to I ask you where the puck is going to, but before I, um, before I do ask you that, I, I'm curious to know if you remember, like, what was your first experience of... You said your grandfather gave you camera at nine. Mm. What was your first experience, I guess, of filmmaking or storytelling or, you know, creating something 
uh, I guess, kind of tactically and yeah, viscerally. Yeah, yeah well, like, he had his Super 8 camera, as my grandfather, and um, it was on its last legs. I was never allowed, you know, this is like when I was eight or nine. You know, growing up, I could never touch the camera. Yeah. It was his thing, and he did the holiday <laughs> videos and that sort of thing, holiday films. Um, so uh, it was on its last legs, about to conk out, and he just basically gave me the last roll of film. And uh, I picked, picked the camera up and started filming a few things with my brothers and sisters out in the yard but that didn't seem very interesting there wasn't really much going on so we started like with the last you know minute or two of film just what if we get this uh you know get someone to crash that billy cart into that gutter you know and then <laughs> we replace them with a stunt double and you know, throw them off something you know they're doing something dumb like that and so me and the kids around just uh made stuff like that and that was kind of like the end of the little piece of film and then the, the thing basically died you know <laughs> pulled it apart <laughs> so um yeah but but I, I do remember filming that little sketch or whatever you want to call it little sequence and thinking oh this is this is fun i like i could see myself doing this somehow or other yeah um which uh yeah it was un- unusual you don't really get those moments that often it's like this seems cool and i you know seen behind the scenes things of films and uh you know watch the making of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and stuff and go, that looks, that looks like a fun job. There's no way I could do that sort of thing. And then, you know, a few, few years later, you're holding a little camera and doing something that's sort of similar in a way, you know, just in a very basic way. And you go, yeah, maybe this is sort of what it is. Mm. What were the, what were some of the films or shows that were influencing you? Cause you found a very specific niche pretty early on in your career. Yeah. It's sort of hard to pinpoint really. I guess a lot of it's come from, working with comedians and their sensibilities and what what they want to express so a lot of a lot of the stuff that i do i guess is facilitating their ideas you know like trying not to screw up their ideas like i I think of you know john saffron being a good example like when you read his scripts you'd have read the title and first have no idea where it's going it sounds bizarre and you'd read it and you know sometimes when you're reading a script from other people you go "Hmm, that's interesting i wonder if we could do this or that you know, with John's scripts, like, wow, this is good. Like, I don't know if we can do this. Like, this is how we're not going to screw this up. Basically, was the was the thought. And so, I suppose we were inspired by the, in that generation things like Michael Moore and I don't know, like the predecessors of the kind of jackass kind of thing. You know, that they were on MTV and things like that, and skate videos. Like, we I used to make skate videos when I was a kid, and so they had lots of random weird things in them and that seems like a fun territory to be playing in yeah how did you get uh introduced to john saffron uh i used to work with him at clemenger so we both worked on ads together um back in like the 90s hmm. yeah so um through doing that through working with him and just sort of being friends with him he went away and did uh, a show called race around the world i don't know if you remember that it was a really interesting show where they took 10 to like 18 to 25 year old kids in inverted commas um and gave them video cameras again this is like started the dv generation of cameras where these things became possible and let them go for it and do 10 uh, documentaries in 10 different countries by themselves and so john entered that and i helped him cut his little entry video which everyone had to do to enter this thing and he was um, you know obviously a standout in terms of having this great creative ability because he's a very good copywriter and good at coming up with novel ideas and had a bit of a background in journalism and, you know, obviously a really good writer and, and thinker. And so he did really well just to be able to stand out from everyone else's documentaries, which are, were good, but they were more what you expected. His thing was so left of center that it really polarized people and that made him the standout of that. Mm. Um, 
so once he came back from race around the world, um, the ABC were keen to keep doing something with him. And so they commissioned two pilots to, um, for a series. Um, and uh, they started shooting some of that in Sydney. And John found that challenging because the people there weren't really used to that really run and gun um, guerrilla style of filmmaking. They were more like, you know, the noise was too loud. They would call cut the sound recorders would stop recording. And it's like, no, we're in the middle of a stunt here. You can't, yeah. you know, we're going through Ray Martin's rubbish. We can't, you know, we can't stop the <laughs> thing no out. Yeah, so that really stressed him out. And um, he eventually brought the, the whole thing back down to Melbourne and we reshot stuff and, and did these two pilots that uh, were, you know, very lo-fi and that was kind of intentionally part of the aesthetic, but it was also all we could do. Mm. Um, so we did you know, lots of fun little sketches with that and did these two pilots and it never really went to air. And then, mind you, this is before the internet really had video or anything like that. So it, um, some of the tapes got leaked out and just people copied VHS copies of it and showed it around. And so a lot of people saw very poor copies of this. <laughs> but the ideas were funny and things were, things were clever and uh, you know, it was a good chance to get things out there and like a very mm. early version of what happens on YouTube now. <laughs> people yeah. go and just spread stuff virally but um this is just a super lo-fi shitty way of doing that it's interesting to consider like people like john saffron and the chaser as sort of being almost on that crest of the uh the youtube revolution in a way Mm. and that you know i guess in a bigger picture sense people like sasha baron cohen were creating these quote unquote memes Mm. Uh, similarly to John Safran and, and these other guys uh, at a time where it wasn't really being done or at least not as widespread as it is being mm. done now. So it must have been pretty yeah. cool. Uh, obviously, yeah. there's no objectivity when you're doing that. It's more retrospectively, but it must yeah. be quite cool to reflect on some of the things that you did at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've done so many weird, crazy things. I yeah. sort of forget half of them. <laughs> as uh, my nephew a few years ago was just watching through, you know, he was like nine or something at the time. And he was like, hanging around our house in Sydney and I was, you know, put on some of the DVDs of the Chaser stuff. And it's like, you remember all these, it's like watching weird home movies. And you go, oh yeah, I remember doing that. I remember standing there and <laughs> watching John Howard get angry at us or whatever it was, you know, that was, that was funny. And you just like, you forget cause you're just producing so much stuff so quickly, particularly on the Chaser where it was a, you know, we're doing 28 episodes in a row, more or less. I think it was a small That's gap in between in nuts. the middle. Yeah. Um, and every week is a different set of random things you know there's a batch of sketches that are hopefully in the can before you start going to air um but you know it's hard to predict what's going to happen mm. and so every week there'll be a bunch of scripts and then half of the scripts would become irrelevant because something changed that particular part of the political landscape had changed that person wasn't relevant that story had gone off the, off and so you always the last few days leading up to the actual um live record uh, live to tape but you know essentially mm. live kind of bit where you know the would have to be madly just running around shooting all sorts of different things to just make the deadline and yeah but it's great you know, to see it go to air which was which is really cool and also to see the audience react to these things that you shot and go okay that worked the way that we thought or that didn't work the way so it was a, a great feedback loop to be involved in where most of the time you just sort of do something and then months later you might show it to a bunch of audience that uh, you know, possibly not impartial, you know, your friends or the crew or whatever. Um, but here's a whole bunch of, you know, 300 people watching it mm. and you can, you know, they're probably fans, but you can tell the bits that don't work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And hopefully you get the chance to chop them out. Mm. 
but I guess when you're doing something, and I and I can only assume that the machine that was behind something like the Chaser was not very big. Like, well, Chaser was a pretty big production in some senses. Like, um, the when I first started out there in the first season, it was basically I was divided up by um, Mark, who did the studio bits, like the live bits with the audience. So he had directed that live bit, and myself and. Um, sort of almost like a news crew team would sort of shoot the sketches and stunts and that became pretty hard to maintain the the momentum and so then we added another crew nathan who was one of the other producers who was working with me he ended up directing a lot of the stunt bits and i do more of the sketch things and would cross over a bit and then al came on as well and he, he would uh, direct more of the ske- uh, stunts as well and so would kind of overlap and tag team on that stuff just so we had enough quantity of material and it was getting harder and harder as it went to find new angles, but also to um, not be seen because people would spot, go, oh, that's Julie Morrow, you know, like then the thing would be over, you know, and it wouldn't work. <laughs> or, you know, I remember once we were chasing Malcolm Turnbull and we went to some, he was doing some press conference at a, some private girl, girl's school or something like that. And we we're kind of like sneaking up on him behind, you know, behind him. And there's like this heaps and heaps of these teenage girls were just like about to kind of yell at Julian, like Julian, and like, everyone's like, and Julian's going, you know, signaling, signaling the, to the kids to be quiet, you know, so they could actually say yeah, the yeah. dumb line or present the dumb prop or whatever it was. So yeah, it was, it was, um, it was funny. Lots of like weird car chases as well. Like you would always be chasing people. I assume uh, not in, like in the set piece. Uh... Well, no, no, like in, like you're chasing Malcolm Turnbull yeah, or chasing yeah. Kevin Rudd in a car. And often we thought they were like, they're onto us. Like they're going, oh, they're driving really erratically and they're doing some weird, they stopped and just pulled into a car park and gone the opposite direction. <laughs> but then more often than not, they'd just totally not seen us at all. They're just like really bad drivers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they didn't know where they're going or they're in a rush and they're on the phone. Was there any kind of desire, I guess, from your behalf to be doing more, uh, I guess, fiction-based stuff? Because a lot of the stuff that you were doing, at least... Uh, in terms of stuff that was out, you know, the, the biggest stuff was mm. in this kind of documentary style, even though, you know, you're doing, sure, there's, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of kind of sketch stuff yeah, involved yeah. with it as well. Yeah. Was that satiating any kind of fictional yeah, desires yet? Yeah, yeah. I think certainly shooting a lot of that documentary stuff, it's it's fun, sometimes stressful in other ways. So it's a very specific thing, which is very different to your classic filmmaking thing that you'd expect. So it was always good to work on those shows where we did have a chance to do some more produced things and get to use a studio and build a set or whatever like that. So that was always good. And I think that's what drew me back a little bit to doing commercials because you get a bit more of a chance to plan things and actually use some more craft. Yeah. Whereas when you're doing a stunt, you're almost like you don't want it to look too good. You know, if it looks uh, you know, too professional, it loses some of its edge. You know, mm. You want to be kind of reacting to what's happening and not knowing what's happening. It's like an improvisational feel to the whole thing. So, um, yeah, so I certainly felt like that was something I wanted to work on. And I did a, a show with Lawrence Long called Maximum Choppage, which is a, a sort of comedy, uh, kung fu comedy was what, kind of what they <laughs> called it. So that had a lot more you know, traditional TV narrative style things that were you know, totally different to the documentary uh, route that we were going down with The Chaser and Safran. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in both things. Like, probably my one flaw is that I don't focus on any one particular thing. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm very reactive. So I'm just like when people come with, to me with something, I'm just like react to what that is. You know, like I don't really have any rules about what it is that I do. I just try to 
try to pick the the best thing at the time. Yeah, I think that's a good way to be, and, and especially if you have the body of work to kind of back up what you've been doing, and you're just kind of constantly moving forward. Mm. You don't really. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to be too prescriptive with myself about where I want to pigeonhole myself. Totally, yeah. It becomes it's a really interesting dilemma because you know, having worked in advertising, the thing that they drill into you, you know, when you when you talk about brands and things like that, is like you know, be single minded, have a single minded objective, you know, only own one space. You know, that's kind of the rules of how it works for big companies, but that's not it doesn't really work that well for people because <laughs> people are not so cut and dry. But, you know, on the other hand, there are, you know, there are some people who just have a very specific thing they do. You know, you go, okay, where's Anderson? You know what? He's going to give you that sort of thing. And he does an amazing job of that. And so he's done well to have a very specific thing. And, um, but that's a tricky thing to pull off and you have to pick the right thing because people get over that thing that you do, then what do you do? Yeah. Um, Yeah. it's It's a tricky dilemma for any artist really, you know, to like, you know, if you're a painter and you paint a certain thing, you know, can you paint another thing? You don't become uh, pigeonholed into that. But um, whether that's something you want to do creatively or not, it's a different thing. Well, I guess, like you say, you got to keep reinventing yourself with the time that is in front of you. Totally. Uh, you know, like you're saying, you're constantly kind of aware of the technological advancements uh, mm. in the way that creativity or storytelling is being produced. So if you... I think if you flow with that, it's it's more than likely that you'll keep evolving your creative tone or style or whatever. Totally, it may yeah, be. yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, like in myself, like I'm very into because I've shot so many things physically myself, as well as directing. Like I don't really work as a cinematographer per se, but I've shot a lot of things myself just because that's the way we had to do it. Um, so I'm very into that side of thing, and I like, you know, I'm a gear freak, and I like knowing about cameras and stuff so you know i've got a red and i shoot things on it with other directors that i like and i can work with and it's like that's really good fun and um it sort of reminds me of being back in film school like this sort of dodgy film school many years ago which dodgy film school it was um one called the institute of lens arts i mean it wasn't dodgy it was dodgy in the (laughs) sense that it was a a much more lo-fi thing than vca or aftrs um it's run by this great guy uh john win twig and he was like a, I think he trained people at the ABC when they had training facilities and things like that. And he just got together groups of people each year and did a kind of mini VCA kind of course in a way. Like he'd teach how to use a 16mm camera and we're learning how to load film and teach us a bit about photography and just throw us into doing things. And there's probably about 13 of us, I think, in the year that I did. And we all cried each other's films. And yeah, they made, it was, even though it's part time, it was very full on because you had to work on everyone's films and, you know, commit to being there you know, every weekend or night that you needed to do something for six months or so while the production bit of it happened. You did six months of kind of theory and then six months of just shooting. But it was great because like we all learned a lot of stuff and got right in there and, you know, crewing on each other's films is a great experience, you know, just to know what everyone does. And I was fortunate because I got, got to shoot a lot of people's films, you know, they would direct and I'd DP or do camera or something like that because I had that experience so people would come to me versus someone who'd never done it before so it was great you know it's got to burn heaps of 16 mil film and mm. it's like it's expensive so <laughs> having that experience is great when you're not paying for it you know? yeah and yeah when you're getting that kind of uh, education and grounding yeah, yeah it's kind of a no-brainer isn't it for sure yeah and so you went from that 
into the world of advertising? I kind of did those both at the same time. So it's kind of unusual. Like I, I got into a university course, but then in the sort of summer holidays, I ended up getting a job through a friend of a friend who had a production house and I worked at this production house as an, an assistant editor and you got to go on shoots and do different things like it was mainly an advertising uh, production house and I was there for a couple of months and then um, that came to an end and I couldn't really go back to university because that had already started so I thought I was keep keep doing stuff so I learned that's where I learned uh, Lightworks which is a non-linear editing system and um, and then Avid and then the guys from Clemenger rang me up and said hey you want a job and I was like yeah cool great <laughs> Yes, yes, please. And thank you. <laughs> yeah, which is weird, but uh, yeah. Like so those. how long did you work uh, at Clemenger before you started working full-time in TV land? Yeah, uh, that was probably about four years. So I think Safran uh, was there about the same time as me. He left to do Race Around the World. And then a few months after that, his, his copyright, his um, sorry, art director, Michelle, and I left Clemenger to help him complete these um, pilots. So, yeah, I've always sort of been intertwined with the, the two worlds. I sort of switch and swap between the two of them because of that history and uh, experience, I guess. Yeah. And what prompted the move to Sydney? Uh, the Chaser. Right. Yeah, so that was, we'd finished doing, we'd done Versus God and I was working with Safran on a, another show called Speaking in Tongues, which was a talk show with him and Father Bob. So they'd get on different interesting people and do a half hour chat show. So we'd produced a whole bunch of those and um, I met the Chaser guys at the AFI Awards because we we're both in the same category and then a few weeks later Julian rang me up and they'd already started the, the show they started shooting and um, the other director Brad who was doing what I would eventually go on to do went back to Brisbane to continue what he was doing there he only sort of signed up for a certain amount of time and I think they thought oh maybe Brad will just continue and had put that on the back burner and it's like oh shit we need we need another director who can do this sort of thing <laughs> And I guess at the time there wasn't that many people who had that experience. So it was a, it was a really good fit because I'd done this sort of weird thing that they wanted to be able to shoot sketches and shoot these guerrilla, you know, hassling politicians and things like that. So uh, it was, yeah, it was a really good fit. And I'd always been a fan of their, their work from uh, even getting the physical newspaper that they used to have, you know, we used to subscribe to that back in the day. So it was, <laughs> it was a, you know, it was a good completing the circle thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Was there any apprehension about uprooting from Melbourne and going to Sydney or you just thought, no, this is... Uh, no, funny, actually. It was, it was funny because I'd only met my wife you know, maybe six months before that had happened. So we just moved into a new place into Melbourne. She's from Brisbane? She's from Brisbane originally, yeah. What was she doing in Melbourne? She was uh, finishing her degree. So she was studying archaeology. So she's doing her master's oh, wow. at La Trobe. That's very yeah. impressive and creative. Yeah, yeah. So she's uh, um, she was completing that. And then... Even when she, cause she was in this sort of transitional stage as well, like in Melbourne temporarily just for study. And, you know, we, we went to Sydney just for a weekend getaway early on. And she's like, hey, I wouldn't mind living in Sydney sometime, you know, because her sister lived there for a little bit and she had um, some affinity for Sydney. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, oh, I wonder if that involves me. Because, you know, we only just started seeing each other. And then a few months later, I'm like, well, remember you said you wouldn't mind going to Sydney? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she was like, yeah, well, yeah, and uh, you know, fortunately, she said yes, and she was finishing up a job that she um, had, you know, just sort of an office job that she'd been doing. So she was keen for a change and decided to move to Sydney and become a photography assistant, and eventually become a photographer out of that. So it was a, you know, it was a fresh start for, for both of us. 
it's cool. It's nice to have those sort of fresh start moments, I think. Yeah, funnily, I was working with um, uh, Ted Emery, you know, the guy who did Fast Forward and all that stuff, just randomly on an ad thing. And uh, we were doing some casting or something like that for a, for an ad. And uh, it was like literally at the point that I was sort of taking the call from Julian Morrow and I was sort of bouncing the idea off him. But I was like, what do you think, Ted? You know, like, and he's like, yeah, you should do it totally. You know, like, yeah. Sydney's a fun place if you're younger, you know, go and go and have fun. You know, I'd do it. And so, I mean, obviously I was going to do it anyway, but, um, you know, <laughs> got the seal of approval the seal from of Ted. approval, yeah. yeah. That's a good seal of approval. Yeah. So you lived there for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did a few, three seasons of The Chaser there, um, two seasons of a Lawrence Long, Lawrence Long show, um, which were like, again, similar comedy documentary things, one where he we um, he sort of had a bucket list of things that he, as a child, wanted to have achieved by the time he was 30. So each episode was about him trying to achieve <laughs> his childhood ambitions for himself. And that was a lot of fun. It was like a very lo-fi um, production where it was like myself, Nathan, who was co-directing, co-producing, along with me, um, doing the same thing, and Lawrence and you know, uh, Ra, Nick, who... Um, we basically did a whole bunch of stuff in LA and uh, that was really good fun. Just like interviewing different people and very lo-fi and got to meet the guy who wrote MacGyver and you know, right. <laughs> guys to teach Lawrence how to rap and pick up artists and all sorts of weird things. So yeah, yeah that was, that was really, really fun times. Did you get to uh, achieve any of your bucket list items? Oh, um, I guess traveling, yeah. <laughs> traveling for free. I guess that was a good good thing to be able to do um yeah uh i didn't really have a list it's i wasn't that organized unfortunately <laughs> lawrence is more organized than me just had a shot list yeah shot list i ticked the shot list off yeah uh and then you wound up moving to new york yeah yeah so that's basically the the big picture yeah yeah and uh you shot something last year for seth myers yeah we did a thing uh actually it wasn't that long ago it was actually earlier this year that we shot a thing for um the the, the tonight show that he's on uh, late night with Seth Myers, and it was a segment it was actually sponsored by tourism Australia so they did a like c- kind of co-production thing so it wasn't really like a traditional ad it was more like hey we want you guys to come to Australia and do your thing and so we at the time Seth was having a baby or his wife was and uh, so he couldn't come along so Amber Ruffin one of the other comedians who's on the show quite a bit and she's a co-writer of the, the show as well um so she got the gig and was very excited about that and uh, basically we got to do all the things that amber wanted to do on an australian holiday and <laughs> pat kangaroos and go uh go on sand dunes and sl- slide down them on those little things and what else we do football with matthew Richardson. yeah exactly all those things so yeah, yeah so that was that was good fun what was the, did you find that there was like a kind of difference in scope of working on something at that kind of level versus uh, I guess some of the more, I guess, lo-fi stuff that you had been doing, you know. Yeah, it was very similar, ago. really. Um, the, interestingly, the way that they do it, because maybe this is just Amber, but she's very, um, she's much more improvisational than some of the other people that I work with, I guess. Like, she's best when she doesn't really know what's happening, mm. in, in a sense. So their their script, if you like, was just very... Um, very basic it was just like basically dot points of here's the locations here's some ideas and they were just really happy doing that and they would her and her producer would just write the odd line here and there and figure out what they wanted to do and we just sort of made sure everything else was going to work for them and um facilitated the 
them being able to just improvise and 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 do their thing so mm. um it didn't really have a lot of the other pre-production elements that you'd normally have with a production is very spontaneous in that sense you know you've uh, you know i guess off the back of that working with someone or in a show that is you know uh well recognized uh, late night show from where you've sort of started you know you've won multiple afi awards or the shows that you've made mm. have won multiple afi awards and Khan lion uh so many awards i suppose what i'm got what where i'm coming to is how you've evolved your own idea of what success is for you for your career from where you sort of were starting out with with john or in advertising mm. to living in new york and and traveling between london and new york on various projects yeah yeah I mean, it sort of all feels just like a slow evolution to me. Like, I don't really notice the difference so much. You know, like, I feel just as excited about having done the things 20 years ago than I do things now. You know, like, they're all kind of equally interesting to me. Um, so, you know, I just, I kind of like think about it like it's like a lot of little baby steps, really. Like, mm. everything is just a progression of the previous thing. So, um, when you're living it day to day, it's kind of, mundane in a way (laughs) it's like all right well here's this next thing we're just gonna try to make that a little bit better than the last thing and maybe we learned this little trick and maybe we can call on these people and (laughs) yeah so it's sort of a a very slow process really like even when we you know you know it's pretty crazy that they let us as such young people to do these insane things when we're like you know doing that versus god show when i was like 26 i think john was like 27 or something like that you know and Celine as well, probably similar age, uh, who's the producer, um, you know, it's pretty big responsibility, but we were lucky because we'd had so much, uh, so much practice at doing things and delivering stuff. It was just kind of another, it's very exciting, but it was at the same time repeating the process that we've done many, many times, just in a slightly more exciting, cooler way. Um, so yeah, it, you, it's sort of hard to kind of point to exactly like, oh, there's the big break kind of moment. It's just yeah. like this slow, slow, slow burn. Yeah. Yeah. You're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then all of a sudden you wake up and here you are. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, so where's the, where's the puck going to now or next? Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you mean in terms of what I want to do next? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's very hard. Like I, I'm very organic with how I pick things. So because a lot, I think a lot of directors, when you think about classic directors is what they're supposed to do they tend to really be like writers really and they're um they're the people coming up with an idea or you know finding some nugget of an idea and developing it whereas i've always been more on the once the concept's sort of in some sort of formation then i kind of take it right through the end like that's that's where my skill set really lies so uh, which i think has been beneficial having such a a lot of experience in production and also in post-production as well having worked as an editor and being very across that. So I'm able to do a lot of the heavy lifting and repairing of things that didn't quite go the way we wanted or just getting the best out of things. So I feel like a lot of my skills are in that. But the the negative side of that is then you're not really that in control of where you're going. You're more at the whim of someone else wanting to invite you onto their thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's TBC really. It's like, <laughs> depends on what, uh, you know, just talking to some guys now I've got like interesting feature film thing that they're interested in developing. And it's like, cool. That might be a cool thing to do. Or mm. maybe I'm not the right fit for that, you know? And, uh, so it's very ad hoc and you know, particularly in commercials as well. It's even more so it's like, you really have no idea what's coming down the pike. It's 
you know, you see a, a treatment, you get get to do a treatment for an ad. So they give you a script. Here's the basic idea of what we want to do. You write these extensive, ridiculously long treatments that explain in excruciating detail how you're going to do it. And then you may or may not, you know, you might be one of the three people who get to pitch and you may or may not get it. And then all of a sudden you're doing it and then it's done. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then you're like, who knows what the next thing's going to be. Um, and again, that sort of comes to that thing where it's very hard to, to know when you don't have a very, very precise, specific thing. Uh, some people have this thing where it's like, I just shoot car ads and I've got a stack of these great looking car ads and that's a very specialized thing. And that's, that, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But for me, I'm, I'm kind of more a collaborator, I suppose. Like I try to mesh in and find the weak spots and try to help where, where I find um, that can be of best use. Are you tempted at all with this current uh, documentary boom that's happening with you know Netflix and Amazon and all of these platforms just you know buying or uh, distributing all manner of uh, feature or short form documentary series? Are you mm. tempted to kind of go back to that that world of working? Yeah, I mean, I think that applies equally, if not more so, to the narrative side of things as well. Like, there is so much of that content that's required. And that seems to be where a lot of the interest lies at the moment. Um, it's interesting. I was at uh, one of, we did this pilot of last year that got into this uh, festival in New York a couple of weeks ago. And good thing about the, this um, thing was like you get to go to all these seminars that listen to the executives chat about what they want. And mm. you know, it's it's interesting because like for my whole career, I've always listened to like back in the nineties, everyone in advertising was like, oh, it's it's good now, but you know. In the 80s, it was amazing. You know, this, and they tell you these amazing stories where it's like insane. And you've always heard of like, good you, you kind of like missed the crest of the wave a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah. But it's weird listening to these people now uh, in light of the whole Netflix and Hulu and this content thing that's changing the game. It's, that's, it's, now, it's now like this is the golden age now that you're in. It's like, that seems very odd. Mm. Uh, it's like, hang on, I thought that was always in the past. You know, it's like the golden years of Hollywood, the golden yeah. years of advertising. Um, but to have people literally say, you know, like now is the time for this thing. It's like, it's quite exciting. So, you know, I could certainly see, you know, opportunities coming up there. And it's, you know, if it's also where the money is and not, not from, for me personally, but it just, it helps you make cool things because it's filmmaking is an expensive process and it takes a lot of people and a lot of resources to A, do something well and then A, get, and then B, get people to actually see it. So um, well, that's the hardest part. Yeah, it is. So, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's interesting and kind of exciting times to be in this world for for a lot of people and, and particularly because network television has been so confined and there's so few things that get up. You really, it's very, very difficult. Um, so you could probably be a small cog in a big <laughs> machine or maybe you strike it rich and have some amazing idea that gets picked up by CBS or something like that. But that's, you know, they're, they're so rare. Um, there's only a few pilots each year that those networks end up producing or, you know, they'd make a certain amount of pilots and then a handful of them go to air eventually, you know, if you're lucky. So, um, yeah, with the whole Netflix and content thing, um, you know, who knows if that will last, maybe it'll be a fad that people go, Oh yeah, that didn't quite work out the way we wanted, but hopefully it sustains itself and, um, is a good source of income for a whole bunch of people to do creative things. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the best part of from I guess from our point of view, and you know, just meeting so many people at the moment who say who are telling me, oh yeah, I've got this, 
project that's in development with Netflix or mm. I'm talking to such and such about, it seems like there's so much going on now as well mm. versus, you know, only maybe five or so years ago where it felt like it felt like the possibility of getting something up was so much uh, more sparse, I guess. Mm, totally. Yeah, and the other big thing that they seem to be talking about at this, these seminars are just how they really are into finding more diverse voices. So, and you know, in all sense of the word, which is good, you know, because you can understand if you're a if you're a network and it's very mainstream and you've got to deliver the numbers and things like that. That's your mandate, and so it becomes very limiting. Um, you know, even if you're trying to do something that reaches different audiences, it's a very risky proposition that might cause that thing to seem like a failure. Whereas now it seems like okay, people are more receptive and there's more you're reaching more people and they want more specific things. So. Yeah, there's, a, there's opportunities for people who um, in the past might have been overlooked. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much, Craig, for coming and, and chatting with me while you're very limited time in London. Really <laughs> no appreciate your, uh, your time and your insights. I finish all of my podcasts with the same question. The question is, what makes you silly? Hmm. I'd say probably like very cute small animals. <laughs> <laughs> like I used to have a Pomeranian. Maybe that would make me silly. Yeah. Uh, sleep deprivation is always one that... When you're in the edit suite, sometimes things seem funny and then they're not. Yeah. When you watch them back in the morning, they, <laughs> they can make you go silly. Um, what yeah, was, I don't know. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Craig. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.